0: We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. I've enjoyed the welcome that I've had over this last few days I think I would have enjoyed it a little more if there was a Canadian flag here. (laughs) One of the most needy parts of the world. And I confess that as Canadians, we love to be overlooked. (laughs) We delight in people not taking us seriously. So you may not take me seriously. you can not take me seriously this morning—but do take the Word of God seriously. As many of you know, on the 21st of March in 1630, John Winthrop preached a sermon at Holly Road Church in Southampton, England, and he preached it uh, to a group of Puritans who were about to embark England to come to Boston. And he exhorted them to be a city on a hill, because the eyes of all people are on us. He reminded them that they were to be an exemplary people who would be a showcase and a model of what it meant to be truly human, of what it meant to live in covenant with God. Now, of course winthrop was quoting jesus's words from matthew 514 that julian just read for us many years later of course these words would be quoted by many american presidents especially ronald reagan and applied to america to say that we are an exemplary people who are to be a showcase and model to the to the world i'm not at all sure that such an interpretation comports with the original meaning of Jesus' words. When Jesus speaks these words to his disciples, he is speaking to a very tiny disciple community. In fact, I'm sure that the disciples would have been rather surprised and even confused to hear these words being spoken to and about them. They would have known very well that these words were reflecting back to the book of Isaiah. And I'm quite sure they would not have been understanding these words the way Jesus was speaking them. Jesus spoke to them. And if we can get into their sandals somehow over this next half hour... And if we can get into the mind of Matthew, who's writing this gospel to Jews, there is much it has to say to us on this occasion of the annual mission conference. For years and decades before Jesus, the Jews were living in their own land, and they were seething under the oppressive fist of Rome that would come down on them again and again. And they yearned for deliverance. The prophets nourished their hope, and they read these prophets, sang these prophets, listening to their words of promise, of restoration. And the small flame that was lit in their hearts by those prophets was fanned into a raging inferno, by the oppression of Rome, and that every feast, Jerusalem would throb with revolutionary fervor, looking to that day when they would be delivered from Rome. And the prophet Isaiah, we know, played a major role in shaping that revolutionary hope that gripped Israel. And I want to single out three aspects of that yearning and that longing that that Israel had that are important for our text this morning. First, the Jews expected God to return. God had left, as Ezekiel had pictured it, but God had promised and all eyes would see His glory, and He would return with glory and power with His Messiah to establish a worldwide kingdom that would be centered in Jerusalem. The Messiah would be a powerful military Messiah, and he would crush his enemies, beginning with the Caesar and with Rome. This was fed by one of their favorite chapters of the Old Testament, Daniel 7, that pictured the last empire that they associated with Rome as a beast with that awful, blasphemous horn coming up from the beast that they associated with the Caesar. And they looked for that son of man of Daniel 7 who would take the throne with the Ancient of Days to crush that beast and to humble that horn. The middle chapters of Isaiah also announced a new exodus. In the same way Israel had been delivered from the oppression of Egypt, so Israel would again experience a much greater exodus, a much greater deliverance from Rome. And salvation would fill the whole earth. And Israel would be the main benefactors. A second element of that hope had to do with Israel themselves. Israel, who had this vocation, was now living in oppression under Rome but they would be gathered and they would be restored to their position of power and glory. They had been chosen way back, centuries before, to be a picture of what the true humanity was meant to be. When we listen to Isaiah and Matthew and even today, it must be understood in the context of the missional trajectory of the biblical story where God chose Abraham and promised to restore creational blessing to him, and promised that through him he would restore the blessing of creation to all the nations of the earth. And when Israel was liberated in the Exodus, they were taken to Sinai and given this calling to be a holy people and to be a priestly nation that would bring blessing to the nations. And the whole story is about them living out their new humanity or not being the light to the nations but they had failed and they were in exile and they were under god's punishment and the promise of the prophets was that one day they would be gathered from all the ends of the earth and restored and they prayed this literally three times a day, 18 of the prayers that they prayed is God, one of them was God, restore us, gather us back from the ends of the earth back to your glorious kingdom and establish the son of David and the throne in Jerusalem. They were going to be pictured by Isaiah, a grand and glorious city on a hill and the light of the glory of God and the light of of the glory of living under obedience to the law would flow to the nations. And all the nations would see God's glory and the glory of Israel. One day, they would finally fulfill their vocation. And as the text was read this morning from Isaiah 2, that on that last day, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be the highest established as the highest of the mountains and the people would say come let us go to the mountain of the Lord to where God is he will teach us to walk in his paths and those nations would flow to Jerusalem as Israel walked in the light of the Lord and the third dimension of that hope had to do with the prophets promise that the Gentiles would then finally be gathered as Israel would finally fulfill their vocation. But by the time of Jesus, uh, there was a neglect of this dimension, and most thought that the Gentiles would end up, at least the majority of them, in hell. But any that would be included would be gathered to the light of Israel like moths to a flame. Israel would be exalted, and the nations would stream to it, awed by the glory of God and they would come be, to Israel humbly bowing and scraping before them to this powerful and grand nation of Israel by the time of Jesus this hope of Isaiah was deeply nationalistic Matthew's gospel narrates how this hope is fulfilled and how it is fulfilled in the most unexpected, even shocking way. I tell my students when I teach the Gospels that I imagine Matthew, or Luke, sitting down, smiling, shaking his head, muttering to himself, I am about to tell the story. About how Israel's whole story is ultimately fulfilled, but it is going to be so hard to believe. It is so unexpected and so surprising. No wonder so many of my countrymen and women have rejected this fulfillment. And so Matthew sits down to write how the story is fulfilled. And he tells us early, the first chapter, how God has returned and how he has rolled up the sleeve of his mighty arm to bring salvation and establish his rule over the whole earth. But he's done it in a stunning way. He's done it in the humble life of a man. He's done it in the humiliating crucifixion of that man, where that man is stripped naked, hung on the cross, and humiliated, where he's tortured, and he finally breathes his last. And in there, Matthew says, is one of the mightiest acts of God, where God strips the powers, claims victory over them, and announces that God's kingdom has come. And in the resurrection, that perplexing resurrection of one man in the middle of history, he rises from the dead. You see, the coming of God and the coming of the kingdom is clothed in weakness and humility. No one, no one saw this coming. It sure didn't look like God is with us. It sure didn't look like a powerful reigning Messiah that would crush his enemies, the kind the Jews expected. Yet, yet, God's power to heal and to save, God's power to renew and restore, God's power to forgive and heal has come, to restore the fullness of humanity in all their lives and to restore even the whole cosmos to again be what it was meant to be. God's power is at work in the midst of history, in the person and work of Christ by the Spirit. But Matthew also tells us how that Messiah begins to gather and restore Israel. He refers to the prophetic promise and he says that Jesus is gathering the lost sheep of Israel. He's doing that all right, but it again is so different than what the expectation of most Jews who prayed for this. They wouldn't have been able to take it in because this didn't look like the grand gathering and restoration that they expected. It looked just like the formation of another disciple community, something that they were very familiar with in their social landscape. But this is a clue for Matthew. Matthew employs this well-known social institution of Jewish society, a disciple community gathered around a rabbi. And he uses this theologically You see, the gathering and restoration would not be one of national glory. It would not be a grand city of Jerusalem on the hill of Zion. No, it would be a small, ragtag group of fishermen and some other riffraff being formed into just another humble disciple community. And the Jews were familiar with those. Again, it was part of their social landscape. But this was not the glorious Jerusalem of the last days. And even the disciples themselves could not have imagined what Jesus was saying to them. They undoubtedly would have been gobsmacked when Jesus says to them, Remember Isaiah Remember that promise of the glorious city of Jerusalem and Zion exalted above the nations with the nations streaming? Remember that promise of God to finally form Israel to again be the new humanity? Do you remember that end time promise to finally form an exemplary people who would be a showcase and a model to the world of what being truly human looks like? remember that promise that's you and I'm sure they'd look at each other us that's us but this is a major theological theme in the book of Matthew where God's people are taking a new form not the glorious nation-state but a common disciple community much more humble than imagined well maybe not so common Because it was a community that was being formed by God's power and renewed and restored to the true humanity that God intended for Adam and Eve in the beginning. And so this disciple community is a central theme throughout the book of Matthew. Through his gospel, Matthew carefully paints a profile of what a disciple... And a disciple community looks like and finally with respect to the third element of Israel's hope the incorporation of the nations how did Matthew see this as being fulfilled again it would have been equally surprising to the Jews of this time and to the disciples yes they would be drawn to the light of Isaiah as he pro- uh, the light of Israel, as Isaiah promised. But the light was not their national glory under the law, but it was lives of good works. It was lives of justice. It was lives of righteousness and mercy and knowledge of God. It was, as he says in the next verses, law-shaped lives. God would form this little disciple community, into an attractive light and a city, but it would be a small disciple community that were to be an exemplary model of what God intended human life to look like. And as he builds this profile of discipleship carefully through his Gospels, he characterizes disciples, he characterizes this new humanity as those who would align themselves with and participate in the mission of Jesus himself. The mission of Jesus was gathering disciples in, and they would now participate in that same mission. And Matthew paints a picture of Jesus proclaiming with his words the coming of the kingdom, and then demonstrating with his deeds that that kingdom has come. And when the disciples are sent out in chapter 10, they are sent out to proclaim with their words the good news and demonstrate the coming of the kingdom with their deeds. So not only with their lives were they to be a light to the world, they were to proclaim that with their words and demonstrate it with their deeds. The gospel ends with this disciple community sent out to add and to form more disciples, to build this community in every nation of the earth. And this is how God would gather and form his new humanity to the ends of the earth now among all nations. This was not what Israel was expecting. And the story continues. And we are included in that story included in that story as we now become part of the disciple community, baptized into that story, into that community, and formed more and more to obey all the words of Jesus. We are formed to be disciples. And now we are called to, to align ourselves with the mission of Jesus and to live as the new humanity, to proclaim the inbreaking of God's power to save and heal and to demonstrate it with our deeds, if we are true disciples. That is our identity. And so how do we hear Matthew's words for today? In the first place, I think of the way of mission. A friend of mine has written a book called uh, The Imperfect Pastor. And he said he started life as a pastor that was highly successful. And in many ways, he was what American pastor, they, uh, he thought American pastors should be highly successful. But in the brokenness of his own life that followed, he wrote this book and he said, As I look at America, I say I realize that we want things large, fast, famous, and easy. And when I read the New Testament, the kingdom of God comes slowly, it's small, it's through mostly unrecognized acts, and it's incredibly difficult. That the gospel is, is wisdom that seems like foolishness, power that seems weak. The coming of the kingdom is strength and weakness and greatness in small. It's not the glorious Israel, but the small disciple community living out what it means to be human. But secondly, like Israel, we are caught up in a story that has a missional trajectory, that is moving from one nation to all nations, that is moving from one place to the ends of the earth. And our vocation is to take our place within this trajectory because the day is coming when people from all nations and the entire cosmos will bow down to worship God and this creation will be restored. And so our vocation, if we are part of this disciple community, is to be the new humanity in every idolatrous situation for the sake of the nations. And so thirdly, mission is first and foremost our distinctive lives. It's living in the midst of this idolatrous nation, whatever one that is, for most of us here, the United States. It's being the new humanity. And if we are not different, our words will not carry weight. One time I was preaching at a big high school chapel and I got up there and I began to brag that I was the best trumpet player in the world. Now I looked and saw some of my catechism kids sitting in the front row and they knew I couldn't play anything and they were sitting horrified and thinking he's making such an idiot of himself and I bragged for several minutes about being this great trumpeter. Then I picked up my wife's trumpet she had to show me how to even hold it. And I blew two of the worst notes you have ever heard. After they gave me a standing ovation and sat down, I then preached about how words are cheap if they can't be backed up. You can say whatever you want, but if you say good news, the power of God's kingdom is breaking into history, renewing, God, renewing human beings... People have a right to say, where? Those words are cheap. We hear lots of religious words every day. Where do I see this kind of inbreaking power? What would a distinctive community look like in the United States? Well, here are a few things. It'd be a community of justice in a world of economic and ecological injustice. It would be a community of generosity and contentment in a consumer world gone mad. It'd be a community of selfless giving in a world that is that it orients itself around the self and selfishness. It would be a community of truth that lives with that proclaims and lives that truth with humility. And boldness in a world of relativism and uncertainty. It'd be a community of hope in a world of disillusionment that comes from consumer satiation. It'd be a community of joy and thanksgiving that lives in a world of entitlement. It'd be a community of sacrificial unity. Because unity always is sacrificial. A unity in Christ, in a world that is torn apart by so many things, certainly including the idolatries, politically and economically, of the right and of the left. And it will be a community who experiences God's presence. In a world that doesn't believe God exists, or if he does, he's somewhere up there in heaven. Fourth, it would be words of witness. And what would our evangelism look like today? I think sometimes we have often reduced our evangelistic words to simply individual salvation. But we need to hear again that the good news that Jesus preached was a gospel of the kingdom that, yes, included individuals and persons, but it was much bigger than that we reflect on what does it mean to share good news in that way. And let me share one story. It's a friend of mine who was a pastor in a fairly large church in an American city. And he had gone to get his hair cut, something I don't do very often. (laughs) And as he was getting his hair cut, he was getting his hair cut by a gay hairdresser. The gay hairdresser knew who he was. He knew who the hairdresser was. And there was this awkward, uncomfortable silence. And so he wanted to break that silence in love. So he says to him, what kind of world would you like to live in? And he said immediately, I'd like to live in a world of justice, a world and a place where women and children are not trafficked for sexual purposes. I'd love to live in a world where there's nobody that is hungry anymore. I'd love to live in a world where there's no more war and the devastating power of war. And he concluded by saying, I'd love to live in a world where people would take care of nature. It's such a good part of our world and people don't care. My friend said to him, Did you know what that's what the Christian faith is about? And he said, no, it's not. He says, oh, yes, it is. He says, no. He says, yes, it is. He said, no, and he kept saying that, no. He says, look, I'm a pastor. (laughs) I know what the Christian faith is. He says, the world you're talking about was the way God made the world in creation. It was our rebellion against him that caused what you're talking about. But God set out on this long road of redemption, choosing a people through whom he would bring restoration. And that culminated in this man Jesus who died and rose again. And because of that, this world will again be like that. But till then, he sent us out to make known this good news so you can participate in a world just like that. When he finished, the guy still couldn't believe it. But he went home, and he said to his partner, we're going to church on Sunday. His partner says, what? He says, we're going to church on Sunday. Where? The liberal church with the rainbow? No, we're going to the evangelical church right down the street. He says, what? He says, they hate us there. And he says, you're not going to believe this. I cut a guy's hair today. He's the pastor of that church and he had good news. He had good news. Isn't that what people should hear? Because that's what the gospel means, good news. And he was announcing that good news of the renewal of the creation in which this man, if he repented and believed, could participate. Fifthly, our witness is one of deeds. Again, our words can be cheap. They need to be authenticated and substantiated by deeds that back it up as with Jesus and with the disciples. And I've told this story several times over the last two days. But becoming part of a church that was a broken-down church and seeing that church come back to life and be renewed, one of the key points was when we realized that just outside our front doors were refugees over here and over to this side, a lot of people who were mentally challenged, and starting to mobilize to meet those needs, but not just to meet the needs, this is important, but to get involved in their lives personally, and seeing them start to become part of the church as they wanted to hear the good news. I was delighted to hear, or actually, my wife reported to me because she heard it, I was delighted to hear that one of these tourist groups that go around you know, with their funny hats telling everybody all about Boston stopped in front of Park Street and talked for a while, and one of the things it said is that this church is known for deeds of justice and mercy for a long time. When my wife said that to me, I just said, thank the Lord. That's exactly the way it should be a community known for blessing its city. And then finally, missions is to the ends of the earth. Sadly, many people have recovered the importance of mission in the local neighborhood and forgotten missions to the ends of the earth. And there are others that think of missions to the ends of the earth and forget about mission in their local neighborhood. But biblically, it's both. Being a good news people here with a view to the horizon, to the ends of the earth, to establishing a witness in places where there is none. And I would challenge you as a congregation that takes missions seriously to realize that over 90% of our dollars and over 90% of our personnel that is being used for cross-cultural work is being used not for missions at all, but using for cross-cultural partnership. Partnering with churches that are already well established. That's a very good part of our vocation. But what we need to do is establish witness, places of witness, communities that bear witness to the good news in places where there are none. Brothers and sisters, you are a city on a hill. It's not a command to be that. That is your identity. You are a light to the nations. The eyes of the world are on you as they are on every congregation. And so I call you in the name of Christ to live as the new humanity, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, to demonstrate it with deeds of justice and mercy and peacemaking and reconciliation, and to be part of a movement that takes this good news to the ends of the earth. And may God bless you in this vocation. Let's pray together. Oh God, what a vocation you have given us, that you as the living God who could draw all people to your glory with the mere word from your mouth, have chosen us as broken, such unreliable people to be the means by which the good news of your renewing work goes to the ends of the earth and to the people of our city. Oh God, thank you for such a high calling and we plead with you to pour out your spirit upon us Pour out your spirit on this place and make Park Street a city on a hill, a light to the nations that makes known the good news in life and word and deed. Bless us with the empowering work of your spirit with new life for the sake of our neighbors and those of the rest of the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.